don't know if you remember those adverts. They were um, quite a lot of them, and they were back in the sort of mid to late 1990s. They were Mac versus PC. I don't know if you remember them. There was this sort of rather cool-looking gentleman that sort of came up. He was young, kind of dapperly dressed, and he was trendy and cool. And he would say, hi, I'm a Mac. And then beside him, there was this guy, wasn't there, who was a bit frumpy, a little bit, where, a bit too much weight, and yeah, with a very cheap suit on, looking a bit sort of down. He'd say, hi, I'm a PC, and so on. And the adverts, of course, were designed by Apple computers, and they were there to portray the Apple computers. They were, they were the fun computers, weren't they? They were the computers that would engage you in, in, and, and just make, make your life complete and your home complete. And the PC was given the image of just being bland. Yeah, of course, they good for spreadsheets. That's the only concession that Apple made, I think. Good for spreadsheets, but unable to enhance your life and your home. See, Apple, Apple computers, they, they were good to look at, they would say. And then the, then the PC, they were, they were dull and grey. And the, the Apple computer was easy to use. And the PC was complicated. Everything had to be installed and then downloaded and all those kind of other terms which I don't understand. But basically, the premise of each advert was the same. You were asked to compare and contrast. You were to look at the Mac computer, the, the Apple Mac, and, and see how the, the PC were to compare on that particular thing that they were talking about. And the obvious conclusion the adverts wanted you to get to was, to, was that the PC was rubbish. And the Apple Macintosh was the best thing that you could ever spend your money on. It would enhance your life forever. Compare and contrast. And then make a decision. That's what they wanted. And that's what's happening in our passage tonight. You see, a similar process is going on. Look at verse 9 to 11. You'll see there that there's a division happening within this church in Crete. There are arguments. There are quarrels going on. But by contrast, surrounding those verses are a number of examples of unwavering devotion. What we see here is you see examples of division, but then also examples of devotion. And as a reader, whether in Crete in the first century or in Earlsville today, I guess we need to decide which describes us the best. Division or devotion? Uh, I met with the elders this week and we prayed together and uh, we had a meeting together, but we, I, I just reflected with them uh, uh, I think, I, well, we are. We're really thankful for the devotion of so many individuals within this church. We haven't seen much division here at Christchurch Earlsfield. But we must not be naive to think that we are immune to this. Throughout this short series in this letter from Paul the Apostle to Titus, his trusted leader on the island of Crete, the continued refrain of this punchy communication has been to call the church to a life that is an, in a, living in a, in a way that is an appropriate response to all that Jesus has done for them by dying on their, in their place on the cross. Do you remember, I just want to turn you back to just to give you a bit of context to last week's passage. Just turn back with me, chapter 3 
uh, verse 3 and following. At one time we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But when the kindness and love of God our Saviour appeared, he saved us. I'm going to try this in Bulgarian. Toi nispasi. Not because of the righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. See, the problem is that people like you and me forget. We forget what Christ has done. And likewise, we forget how to respond to his saving work. We can easily move from being those who are recognised and appreciated as devoted Followers of Jesus Christ. We can very easily forget and become those who divide the body of Jesus Christ. His church. Paul has again and again said to um, Titus, you know, teach them, remind them, remind them. Chapter 3 verse 1, remind them to do something particular there of who we are and how we're to respond to Christ. Uh, in chapter 2 we need to be taught again and again in all these different circumstances Because we forget, we need to appoint leaders and submit to their teaching and their authority. Back in chapter 1, that's what we saw. Because we forget. That is the reality of us, isn't it? As members of a church. And the lives represented within this church. That is, if you like, I put down there, real life, real uh, church and real life. Paul is writing here, he says, guys, I understand. That is why I didn't just... You know, kind of leave you in Crete and and, and leave you alone. I gave you Titus, chapter 1, verse 5, to to complete the unfinished work. Therefore, you see, um, he is saying to us, as with the church in in Crete and to us here, it is made up of, of people whose lives are messy and complicated and we need help because we forget. We all need to hear of the grace of God as we saw back in, flip back to chapter 2 verse 11. I'm trying to refresh your minds of all that we've been learning in Titus here. We, we need to be reminded that grace, that undeserved gift from God of his only son who lived that perfect life, who died on the cross to take the punishment that our sins deserve and offer us his perfect life as a substitute for ours. That saving grace, grace who appeared in Christ Chapter 2, verse 11. It, it not only saves us, but it also teaches us, it continues to teach us to say no to uh, ungodliness and worldly passions and live self-controlled and up, upright and godly lives. That is, it. Paul is saying, grace saves, but it also transforms. And he, he says throughout the letter, doesn't he? Those two things are inseparable. This is not, you know, a, a transformed life is not an optional extra. What we do cannot save us. Chapter 3, verse 5, it's very obvious. But living a life that is devoted to God, as, as the contrast is made in these last verses, that is honouring him, following him, is evidence that you have been saved by the grace of God. See, grace not only saves, but it teaches us. It transforms us. And Paul is saying, as he concludes here now in this whole letter, a devoted life is assurance. It's assurance that you 
have been saved by the grace of God. A life that is not saved by the grace of God. Oh, you may come along to church. You may even read your Bible and you may pray a, a lot. And they're good things. But a life that is not devoted to the Lord Jesus Christ will be, by contrast, divisive against the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's the contrast, divisive or devoted. And we're going to look at these now, these closing verses of Titus, as a summary of the letter, but also as an opportunity to examine our lives and see whether we are divisive or devoted. Whether we've been saved by the grace of God and transformed by the grace of God or not. And practically, I hope we will see then how and where in our lives we need to let the grace of God teach us and transform us. So we're going to look and and compare the divisive and devoted person in the church in Crete. And we're going to look at four aspects in each person. The science, the heart, the fruit and the the roots. We see those in your outline down there. And they should come up on the next screen. And so firstly we're going to see the signs. Of firstly, let's look at the divisive uh, person. So what we're talking about here is the outward. the, um, the, The kind of the surface manifestations of a divisive person within the church. And look at verse 9. You get an idea of what was going on in Crete. Have a look at it there. But avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and the arguments and the quarrels about the law. Because these are unprofitable and they're also useless. You see that there? They're unprofitable and they're useless, these arguments and quarrels. You see, even on the surface of someone within the church, the divisive and the devoted people look very different. One is marked by quarrelling, and the other is marked by fruitful deeds, as we'll come to in a while. This divisive person that Paul condemns in verse 10 is literally, the word used there is a heretic, heretikos. And it, in the first century, that word was less than it is today, okay? It's been refined, if you like, over, over time. Simply then, it meant someone who was uh, factious. Uh, a troublemaker, uh, contentious in situations, self-opinionated maybe too. Now, not necessarily a false teacher, as we understand the word heretic to be now, uh, but could be. Now, verse 9 shows the outworkings of, well, pretty, rather stupid and pointless um, arguments and investigations. Uh, they, incite, they incite arguments and, and disputes that, that have really no benefit to anyone. Y- you must have met kind of those kind of people, haven't you? No, I certainly have in my, in my kind of time as a, as a church minister. In my previous church, there was a guy who stayed with us for about three years. He never seemed happy at all. And in every moment he possibly could, he would ask the most awkward of questions that no one ever really wanted to know the answer to. One of his crackers was, now tell me, and this is a kind of in a, in a kind of big public meeting, he just said, tell me about the missing verses of Mark's gospel. Are they, you know, and it kind of went into this. If you didn't know, there are a couple of verses within Mark's Gospel, I mean, chapter 7, verse 16, for example, where we, in our translations, have verse 15, and then it goes to verse 17. And he was asking questions about these. And it's a very simple thing. It's just simply that verse isn't in the, later, in the earliest translations and manuscripts. And it's a very simple answer. But he was asking the question. It's simply to demonstrate his knowledge. I guess he'd done a Wikipedia search or something like that and was trying to show off a bit. But 
In so doing, he was serving himself and becoming very divisive because he made everyone else feel so insecure that they hadn't read this particular thing. He was trying to provoke an argument the whole time on a, on a detail which he thought was very significant, but was totally insignificant. Now clearly there are members of the church in Crete who were concerned about what we see there, of, of issues of genealogies. That's, that is, they were probably concerned about their pedigree. I come from this family, of whose grandfather and great-grandfather did this and this and this and so on. And so to bolster themselves and so, within the church. And they were making these things primary issues within, within the church. Look at me, aren't I great? Don't you think I'm great because I come from that family? And so on. Now, before we kind of look at these things and, and think they're, oh, they're a bit petty, we're a little bit above those things, aren't we? Consider the fact that we too, I think, probably will have disputes at times. Uh, which, as, as within here in verse 9, they're probably not worth the time that they consume. If not now, I guess we may in the future. I, let me just give you a few examples of which I've seen in churches around the country which I've, I've visited. They usually involve things like certain styles of music. They can usually involve disputes in churches. How you lead your small groups. We at our last church, we did it this way. That's the right way. And if you don't do it that way, oof. You know, um, the kind of pastoral care that gets involved in a church... You didn't visit me eight times when I was in hostel for a day. All those kind of things. And they will be issues that people, if they're not careful, can sound, that they ins- sound like they insist on them. Rather than have a preference for them. And these kinds of quarrelings are in all of us. And we need to be very careful to strive to be malleable in these things that are not essentials to the gospel, to the good news of Jesus Christ within our church. In our church, I know we have different views, even amongst a small gathering here. We have different views on infant baptism, for for example. Um, Some of us have different views on, on the way that churches should be led, the government of a church, or Maybe even the kind of involvement that we have within parachurch organisations, that is, things like the Church of England or our little family of churches called Commission. Um, We all have differing views. But it is commendable, and I am truly thankful, I know the elders are truly thankful too, that these things have not become primary issues, but rather remain secondary things. We all as Christians must seek to subdue that kind of contentious uh, part and spirit that, was it, that is actually within all of us. Thinking all, always of what we want, how we want things to be, done our way, for us. We need to subdue that. And rather we must think of the person sat next to us and the whole, the church, trying to consider how God will be glorified in us together And individually, forgoing our own personal preferences and tastes for the benefit of the whole. For the conscientious and um, for the contentious, sorry, not conscientious and divisive. Here in verses nine to eleven, they are they're dividing the church, and it's in order to serve themselves. 
But we must remember from Titus that contention isn't always wrong, is it? You'll remember back in chapter 1 with the elders. They're commended by Paul uh, and they were instructed to contend where the gospel had been compromised. So, for example, let's think of history. I mentioned it already, the Reformation in the 1500s. That was essential, utterly essential, despite what some modern leaders are saying. Simply because it, the Catholic Church were moving away from orthodoxy. They were undermining the central tenets of the gospel. And it was right that men like Ridley and Latimer and Tyndale, they all fought to reform the church of, the church of God in this country and around Europe. Likewise, we need to live out the gospel, united in the gospel, reminding ourselves of those central tenets of the gospel. And everything that is secondary needs to remain as such. And we do that for each of us. For the benefit of the whole. But also to commend the gospel to others. I mean, some controversy can help, but some can be deadly to a church. Because people walk in and all they see is division. We need to pick our battles. There is another way to be in a church, and it is the devoted way. We're going to see that now. Look at verse 14 and 15, if you can, with me. Our people must learn to devote themselves to doing what is good, in order that they may provide for daily necessities and not live unproductive lives. Everyone with me, send your greetings. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. Again, the signs of a devoted life. Uh, the, divided, the divisive quarrels, arguments. But now the devoted shells show themselves in doing good. That is the sign of the providing for others. And look at the examples in these verses. Do you see how everyone is providing for each other? Paul himself intends to send someone to help them. Yes, we've got Artemis and we've got Tychicus there. I think it's pronounced, but never mind. Uh, and it's for their good. It's for their good. And, and then also you've got, um, he wants Titus to come to winter with him. That sounds very nice, doesn't it? We'd like to winter with people. Um, uh, but it is for his good. And likewise, the Christians there in Crete, what are they to do? They're to care for Zenos the lawyer and Apollos, providing everything they need. It is for their good. It's seeking the good of others. And see, Paul wants the church to provide for people, to be devoted to them, not living, as he says, unproductive lives. Being devoted looks very different, doesn't it? Incredibly different to the divisive life that was seen in some. But it's interesting, it gets, it gets more clear. The contrast becomes more stark when you begin to not look at the outside, but then the heart. And we see that now as we get to the, the heart issues. Look again at verse 9. We'll go to the divisive first. Paul simply says the divisive heart, I think it's, it's really empty by that, this, that description. They're unprofitable and useless. That is, if you go behind all of the words, um, that, you know, that all of the arguments, all of the vision... What you find generally within division within church is nothing that's ever important. The church could easily carry on, couldn't it, without, what, without the thing that they're disputing about. I remember someone left my church when I grew up about a church pew. That is ridiculous. And at the core of these people is... is is a vanity, an emptiness, a nothingness, a void. One scholar put it this way, a devouring vacuum longs for attention and so drags people into divisive debate over secondary matters. 
It's just an emptiness. They're distractions that lead to destruction. And therefore the hearts must be confronted. They're empty. By contrast, we see the devoted heart there. They're devoted to good. Providing for the needs of others. And they are selfless, aren't they? We saw that in all those examples in those last few verses. They reflect the very character and the nature of the one who saved them. But has also made them in his image. Actually verse 8 is very helpful. Why don't you just flick back to verse 8. It's not in our passage today but it's just a verse before. He says I want you to stress these things so that those who are trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. But here it is. These things are excellent in our translation. Excellent and profitable. That word excellent. Well what he's saying here is that the, the action that we see, the visible sign, reflect the character of the devoted one, looking for the good of others and the glory of God. And literally, that word there, excellent, means it means right, right in God's sight, reflecting his character. That is the heart of the devoted one. These two ways of doing or being church are different on the outside. Yes, they are. But also at the very core of the being, the heart. The third difference between the divisive and devoted is in the fruit of their lives. Let's go to that now. So we get to the, the, the fruit. Let's go to the divisive again first, if we can. The divisive, we've seen uh, that person, verse 9, have a look at it, is unprofitable and useless. I've used those uh, words again. I think they're helpful. Uh, but they're unprofitable and useless for, for themselves, but also others. There's nothing, is there, to be gained from foolish controversies. They're foolish. They're divisive for no reason. And they empty themselves out. It's very, very, isn't it very, um, it saps your energy, doesn't it? When you're trying to be divisive. Whether that's at work or in church or in in a relationship of any form. And they they empty themselves out with all this strife. And what they generally do, a a divisive person drags people down with them. For no gain. It is just empty loss. And Paul is saying here that such people are dangerous to themselves. But they are also dangerous to others. So dangerous, look at the warning, verse 10. This is pretty, pretty stark, isn't it? See, such fruit of divisiveness should be dealt in this way, Paul is saying. Verse 10, warn a divisive person once, then warn him a second time, and after that, have nothing to do with them. Now, if this works, a divisive person ceases to be a divisive person. And we almost always... As a church, be prepared to do this. If you remember how that was worked out, go, flip back to chapter 1, verse 13, if you can. How the elders were instructed to, 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 to do this is interesting. Because they were called to rebuke a false teacher. Uh, but the rebuke should always be correcting. We rebuke so that the one who is being divisive turns back and becomes sound in their faith. Chapter 1, verse 13 says... See, warning and rebuke must elicit change. And we do so, not with a kind of sense of 
puffed up, kind of, oh, look at me, aren't I good? I'm going to talk down to you. Because remember, turn to chapter 3, verse 3, and you'll remember who we were. At one time we too were foolish, deceived, and all the other things. But you see, God saved us. See, Paul is saying, guys, love people, and care for people, and warn them. Warn them they're being divisive. If they don't respond to the warnings, the two, they constitute a danger, both to themselves and those around them. If they do not heed the warnings, it gets serious, doesn't it? Have nothing to do with them. Uh, Literally, um, it, it means expel them. Get them out. Cast them out from the church. Excommunicate them. Is another word that has been used in history. Not because we don't love them, but because we do love them. And we want them so much to see the seriousness of their sin and repent. But it's also for the good of the church, so that the whole, all of us, see that unrepentant sin is not overlooked, it is serious. And in love it will be challenged and action will be taken to protect the whole. At my previous church, a friend of mine was um, leading a youth group. And he went through some tough times of family and uh, a number of things happened. But he responded poorly, as he would say now. And he got involved in a relationship uh, with a girl at at work. And she wasn't a Christian. And then she came to see me and she told me that they were sleeping together. What should I have done in that situation? And what would you do? I'll tell you what I did. I went out for a beer with my friend. And we chatted. And I think we talked about the football. We had a nice time together. But I leaned over him halfway through the evening and I said, you're being stupid, aren't you? And he was honest and he was frank with me and he said, yes, I am. I said, it's youth group tomorrow night. You are not allowed to go there. You cannot lead a bunch of people and be in utter compromise in your relationship. And he agreed with me. I can't say it was a particularly easy thing to do. And he heard the warning, I'm very pleased to say. I I asked him, he couldn't read the Bible at the front of church, he was on a rotor to do that. He couldn't pray and lead the congregation in that way, in any visible or public way. But he could sit in the chairs and hear God's word and begin that process of coming back to sound faith. But we did not stop loving him. I met with him every week for about six months and prayed with him and read the Bible with him. And in a matter of weeks, his relationship had ended and he showed signs of repentance. And over time, he became sound in faith. And I, I think just uh, maybe six or seven months ago now, this happened five or six years ago, by the way. Um, he did actually then the elders of the church of which I left felt that he was in a place that he could represent the gospel and teach the gospel and commend the gospel in a public role. And he's now leading a Bible study group 
And I am thrilled. He'd been brought back lovingly, caringly, but there was discipline. Now, I don't regret that strong stand. I have to say it was very hard, but it allowed him to be restored. Now, I don't think that Christchurch Hillsfield here, we're going to face many disputes about genealogies, do you? But I think we might face division on this kind of thing. When brothers and sisters are struggling with relationships, they're struggling to obey God in his word. And those of you who may consider such relationships in the future, you have to know that you are being divisive, probably more than the person who is trying to start an argument about a particular verse in the Bible or, or you know, a genealogy and so on. And I want you to know that the elders and I, we're not here, we're here because we love you. But we're not here to be your friends or to gain lots of friends. But we have lots of friends. And we have lots of friends here. And that is a good thing. We are here to teach and to lead. And sometimes that means to discipline too. In a loving and corrective way. And I've done that here already in Christchurch Hillsfield. And even when the numbers were tiny, uh, you know, a year or so ago, I dared gently challenge someone um, because of what I felt was their divisive behaviour on issues of relationships and so on. And it is difficult. And it is divisive. You must understand it's divisive because it sets precedent in other people's minds. You, you, there's people in the, in the pews, in the pews, the chairs beside you saying, um, well, if person X is doing it, then surely the elders are, are fine with it, so I'm going to do that as well. No. And if you're one of those people wondering if anything is actually being said by the elders and me and so on, can I ask you to assume that it is? I remember challenging this particular person when I first came here and they thought my uncompromising biblical stand was too much and they said, I'm off, I'm going. And I remember walking back from that meeting just feel utterly beaten in. Like I'd gone ten rounds with a heavyweight boxer, that kind of thing. But I also remember being upheld by the elders, praying for me and thanking me for not relenting on what the Bible teaches. And I also thank you for upholding me in those conversations too. They are not easy. Let's move on. The fruit of the divisive, though, will not be left unchallenged. Not in my life, it should never be unchallenged. You need to challenge me as I need to challenge you. None of us are exempt because, why? Because we love the church as a whole more than we love ourselves. And we love God to be glorified more than we love ourselves. And we love that people can see good examples of the grace of God being lived out in lives, people say, uh, lives of the people saved by grace. We do this supremely because we want God to be glorified here in this church and here in Ellsfield. Do you know what? In the 18th and 19th century, let me just illustrate this. In Baptist church meetings, I'm not a Baptist at all, um, but you know, here we go. A bit of church history. In Baptist meetings, there was two things that they represented their meetings in. And that was that they, that they wanted to uphold teaching, but they also wanted to uphold correction as well. 
um, in a church of, in, in kind of church discipline, and they took it very seriously. They didn't, they didn't walk away from their duty of rebuke and to correct. And do you know how many people in the 18th and 19th centuries the Baptist church in this country expelled from their churches? Annually, they expelled 2% of the population of their churches for either full-time or part-time kind of thing. Some repented and rejoined the church, some did not. But despite that expulsion of so many people in the churches, the church grew exponentially. Church history shows us that when elders fail to discipline, when they bend over backwards to accommodate and water down biblical standards, the churches lose their distinctiveness. And God chooses not to honour them and they shrink. So for the sake of purity of the church and its witness to the world, it was deemed necessary and the fruit of the divisive will not be overlooked. One great preacher said, when discipline leaves the church, Christ goes with it. If the divisive one does not heed the warnings, they are, as Paul says, look at the word down there, it's pretty shocking, they are self-condemned. That is, they are sinning and they know they are sinning. They're cutting themselves off, finally, from God, essentially. And that is the fruit of the one who is divisive. And it is terrifying. By contrast, look at the fruit of those who are devoted to what is good. We'll see that coming up here. In verse 8, doing good, not only doing good and right before God is, is a blessing there, but it's also because you are profiting others as well. It is for the benefit of others, as we saw in verses 12 to 13. All of those intermingling relationships is for the good of the others. Therefore, the fruit of the division of those who are divisive brings harm for yourself and others. The fruit of the devoted brings blessing from God and blessing to those around you as well. They couldn't be more different, could they? They couldn't be more different. Let's go lastly. Where does all this come from? The device of the roots here. Blimey, I've been going quite a long time, haven't I? I better stop now. There we go. <laughs> Let's look at the roots. Divisiveness is not just to be corrected. It actually, well, it kind of, it, it indicates, doesn't it, that the nature of the person. That, uh, it shows that they need to be changed at their core. Sinful divisiveness stems from the person's being. And as Paul says in verse 11, look at the term he uses. He says, they are warped and perverted. What he's saying there, a pretty strong language, is that, that sin has corrupted the person to their core. And it is changing their whole outlook on life and their, all the actions of their lives. How different, though, to the person who is devoted. Look at the roots of them. Verse 8, they've heard the gospel and they have trusted in God. That is the root of their whole being. It defines them. And they've devoted themselves as a result to doing what is good in God's sight, giving him glory. So I conclude, divisive or devoted? One way is fundamentally selfish. Using others for yourself. And the other way is fundamentally unselfish. Using yourself for others. And Paul warns us from the way of divisiveness and challenges us towards the way of Christ, a, a, a life devoted to the service of God. Now, which best describes you? 
We need to realise that our actions indicate something about our nature. We need to be serious about the church that God has placed us in and we are here for each other, not to serve ourselves. What if we know someone that is divisive? Well, I think it is clear, isn't it? Verse 10 is so clear. Warn them. Just warn them. Lovingly warn them. And if they change, accept them. And forgive them. Don't belittle them. Because you were once like that. But, chapter 3 verse 4. What if they do not heed the warning? Well again, chapter, verse 10 is pretty clear, isn't it? They are to be rejected, ignored, until God in his grace may change them. Now what if you sit here tonight and you look in your own heart and you see that you are divisive? Lastly, can I just say pray? Pray and repent. Repent is simply just turn. Say I've been... I've been divisive in my actions, in the way I've spoken about things, the questions I've asked, and whatever it may be. Turn and devote your life to doing good in the eyes of God and for the benefit and the profit of those around you in God's church. Why? Because you've been warned. You've been warned from God's word. I've said enough. I was going to give some lessons from the letter, but I think I put a few of those at the beginning, so we'll count that as done. <clears throat> Any questions? Points of application. I know some of that's pretty tough. Let me just sit. Why don't you just turn to the person beside you? One thing perhaps that you've learnt today, and maybe from the whole book of Titus, that would be good to, to recap. And then